Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week we have a special holiday episode. We'll start by picking the brain of New York Times national security correspondent David Sanger, the author of The Perfect Weapon. And when David Sanger writes, there's two things that I know. Number one, I want to read it. Number two, I believe it. And after that, we're going to bring on our better halves, Judy Woodruff and Mary Madeline, for our annual politics war room tradition to talk about our Christmases. Then remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget to tell us where you're from because we just love this segment. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. And we thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps to make this podcast happen. And tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, I was going to start off talking about that um, COVID relief package that the Congress finally passed, but I am really, I am, and we, we have outrages of the week. I, I mean, the outrage of the year are those pardons that uh, Trump uh, uh, engaged in this week. And they're the first, I'm sure, of many. It was Borowitz um, uh, who said there's going to be a drive through lane at the White House. But these are some really bad people. I mean, these Blackwater contractors, um, you know, work for the shady Eric Prince. They killed people over there. I mean, it was it was it was clear they got a fair trial and they were convicted of murder and they were pardoned. And these congressmen, uh, Cunningham and uh, California and Chris Collins and the other guy, they really engaged in sh- shady practices and 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 cheated taxpayers. Uh, this is pardons are the normal fares, and I disagree. I disagree with one pardon that your former boss gave, but that was one I didn't like. This is across the board, and a Harvard study by a Harvard professor found that about eighty-eight percent of Trump's pardons are related to him personally. This is really, really awful. What did you expect? He's a criminal, all right. Criminals do not, are not offended by other criminals. I, I, it's it, you know the, the one thing that ju- just reinforces me. They have we have to have a determination of the level of criminality that went on the last four years. We just can't turn the page. It just can't be done. And and there's more coming. I mean, there's never been a better time to be a high level criminal in the United States than right now. It, 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 but it, it, it is outrageous and it is utterly predictable. And it is utterly predictable. We're just in the second inning here. Yeah, we are. And, and I agree with you. It's totally predictable. But we still have to go and talk about it, write about it, harp on it. Because other, what, what he's counting on is people are going to say, ah, well, that's just Trump being Trump. It's far worse than that. It really is. And that's bad. These pardons are just the surface of the criminality that we're taking place. But yeah. you know, that that's going to be for the next attorney general in the Manhattan DA and the New York attorney general and other people to determine. But it has to be determined. Right. There has to be an accounting of what went on. And and this is just a, a minor example of it, I think. But well, there has to be an accounting. And also there are things that don't involve criminality. These pardons don't probably, in all likelihood, don't involve involve. Criminality because the president's pardoning power is expansive. But 
But there has to be some kind of a study, a commission of whatever have you that just talks about how these and lets people know how these things happen. So they're going to take a long time to get rid of these chop that reporter up with an axe, with a with a bone saw, right? They get they're going to give him immunity from suits in the United States. I, I, I'll bet you, I bet you anything you want to bet. There's criminality involved there. Absolutely, anything yeah. that that. I, I bet you, I bet you that in all these pardons, there was there was money that changed hands. And if if the next attorney general is too stupid to figure that out, she or he doesn't need to be attorney general. But Trump would not. He doesn't do anything without some kind of a scam on his part. So I, I, I all all they got to do is 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 look, and they'll find anything they want. Yeah, I'll buy that. I, um, James, you know, I, I'm, I'm really, really, this is a Christmas week. We want to have a lot of good cheer. And I want to wish everybody, obviously, a, a very cheerful Christmas. And I know a lot of people are having a very difficult time. But I, I really get upset when I read these stories about the House and Senate passing this COVID relief bill and say, see, the system works. They really, well, damn it, the system didn't work. The House passed a bill back in the spring. And Mitch McConnell sat on this thing for eight months. They passed it at the last moment. It's not enough. It's not sufficient. It doesn't help enough people. It takes care of some fat cats, that's for sure. There's some outrageous provisions in there, one of which Trump insisted on was the three martini lunch. Uh, but, you know, I rather than, I mean, I'm glad they did it. It's much better than not doing it. But rather than celebrate, uh, I, I really think this was a, a, a shameful uh, act on the part of McConnell and Senate Republicans and sitting on this for months when people are hurting so badly. Well, I, Trump may be to it. Right? If they did not given that this this guy won't. And they, to, to, to be fair, there were some really good things in there. Some people think this is the best piece of climate legislation that the Congress has ever passed. Now, that's a pretty low bar, but they they got a lot of really, really good climate stuff in there. And it's insufficient amount of money for ordinary people, but at least it's something. And, you know, and if we win these two Georgia seats, there's a good chance that there can be more on the way. But, yes, of course, it's, it's loaded up with, with awful, awful stuff. And, you know, it's 5,300 pages long. But, I mean, they got to get – that's the best they could do. And it took them it is better than nothing, that's for sure. And there are there are there, there's some good stuff in there. The reason I am so upset about the delay, and look, I'll take some if they want to give the three martini lunch and some other breaks to fat fat cats. Uh, if there are people who are not going to go hungry and people aren't going to be evicted from their homes, uh, I mean, we'll take that trade off uh, in a minute. But this was something these people have been hurting for the last four or five months, oh, and, and that's when something could have been done. But anyway, it's better now. I. I think it's going to be tough to come back in January and February. We we need it, but I think it's going to be tough. I hope I'm wrong. Right. But see, he, he hadn't signed it yet, and he's crazy. Yeah. And you know, 8 million Americans, almost 8 million, have fallen into poverty since February. That's a stunning figure. 8 million Americans have fallen into poverty uh, in the last uh, nine months. That's just, uh, that, that really is stunning. Before we move on to our our, our just fabulous guest today. Um, any quick word on Georgia? Uh, look, there's a piece in New York Magazine by a reporter who I don't know named Gabriel De Benedetti. It might be 
it, it's the most comprehensive and best piece that I've read in politics in a long time. I, I, I spend like four hours a day talking on the phone about George and talking to people. But it, it's, a, it's a very, it's, it, it's pretty exhaustive and it's a very good compilation of what's going on in Georgia. I, I, I highly recommend it. I, you know, we always talk about the, the Atlantic and we talk about the New Yorker. New York Magazine is is as high quality as those two. They, they have some really, really good people at, at right there. And th- th- this was a really, really good piece. I highly recommend it. And, and of course, no one knows. I mean, the, the, the upshot of the piece is uh, he thinks that the Democrats have a little bit of a, I guess, and I'm extrapolating, he doesn't say this exactly, but the kind of impression you left with is the Democrats might have a little better chance than the Democrats think they have. So, and the, the early, the early stuff is, is just encouraging. Uh, right now, as of yesterday, 32.5% of the early vote was black. In the last election, in, in October, it was 293 and they know that because you you know you, you give your race when you when you register, so they got very very precise numbers. Uh, well, it's going know, to be an incredible, uh, incredibly suspenseful twelve days. We'll see what happens. In addition to that, New York Magazine piece. If anyone hasn't read the New York Times profile of Kelly Leffler, uh, it gives lie to her uh, argument that she was just a simple little farm girl. Uh, who uh, had to be a waitress to go to college? Uh, it didn't happen that way, Kelly. But uh, anyway, we'll see. We'll you know when we come back, uh, James. It'll it'll be just about over, and uh, we'll see. I want to say one thing before we go, uh, and and this week, I don't want to forget this. You know, tomorrow is I think this is right, um, or it may be today is Tony Fauci's 80th birthday. So let's just, as well as a Merry Christmas to everyone, a happy birthday to one of the great American patriots, Anthony Fauci. I, I, I couldn't agree more. That guy's, a, he's a great communicator. He's, a, he, you know, he's a, you know, Italian kid, you know, grew up in the streets in New York and he's got, you know, great instinct as a fighter. I, I, I have to say that his colleague, Dr. Burks, has not distinguished herself. I mean, that was outrageous. No, it, you know, it, it was. That, 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 that's, you know, what, that's, why, that's why the people don't like elites, because right. they just gives off this aura that there's rules for you, dummy. You got, I got a city in Mississippi by myself. And then she says, well, we went to winterize our home in mm-hmm. Delaware. Oh, come on. No, I, I agree. And I'm, I'm going to I'm going to join a campaign or lead a campaign to name the uh, the 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 main building at NIH after Tony Fauci from AIDS through COVID-19. There has been no better public servant. The cyber attack on America may have been the worst ever, one of the worst ever. We have the most knowledgeable expert, David Sanger, chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times, If it has the Sanger byline, I know A, to read it, and B, to believe it. David, uh, can you assess yet the full damage to the American government uh, from this great intelligence failure? And is the only person who denies it's the Russians, Donald Trump? 
I haven't found a single person who thinks that it might be the Chinese or someone else who's tried to muddy it up other than uh, President Trump. And unfortunately for him, um, two of his most loyal cabinet members, uh, Mike Pompeo and Bill Barr, Bill Barr being on his last day as we speak uh, today, uh, have both said that the evidence they've seen is that it's the Russians. It's the Russians uh, for reasons we can go into in a bit. So we don't understand the full extent of the damage. Let me give you what would be the best case scenario, and let me give you what would be the worst case scenario, and the truth is probably somewhere in between. The best case scenario is that the uh, Russians pulled off uh, a wonderfully, uh, brilliantly organized um, intrusion into American systems, uh, realizing that uh, it would be a lot less work if they could just get into the software supply chain that is used by American government agencies and by so many American corporations. And we've all known for years that the supply chain is a vulnerability that, you know, just as if you wanted to disable American tanks, the best way to do it would be to get into the factory that makes the ball bearings and flatten one side of them. In this case, they got into the software company, a group in Texas called SolarWinds, that makes network management software. It's a boring piece of software that's used uh, in sort of the steam room of, uh, of network management. Um, most American, big American companies use it. The New York Times uses it. Uh, the Treasury, uh, the Commerce Department, the Energy Department, the list goes on. Uh, at least six government agencies we can find so far have used it. The Los Alamos National Laboratory uses it. And what they did was they got into the updates of this software, which was badly protected by solar winds. To think about an update, think about your phone. You know, at night you plug it in next to your bedside and magically new software uploads. And in the morning, um, you look and it says there's a new software version. Now, Al, I know you. You go through that software update line by line to make sure it's good oh, before, yes. before you turn your phone on, right? Right. Exactly. Okay. Well, <laughs> no one on earth does that, and no one did it with Solar Winds, right? So they just download the new version because everyone tells you the safe thing to do is make sure your, your, your software is up to date, right? So they went and did it, and that gave the Russians access. And the question of how much they have damage they have done all hinges on what they did with that access. So at the Treasury Department, we know they got into the email systems of um, uh, a good deal of the Treasury leadership, uh, not Steve Mnuchin's emails, not the classified system, we're told. That's happened, we believe, at the Energy Department. We believe things similar to that have happened in an agency of the Commerce Department. So... At the best case scenario, this is straight up espionage. The worst case scenario is that once you are into that system, you can read data, but you may also be able to manipulate data. So imagine for a minute that I got into medical records, you know, at the minimum, I could, you know, read the medical records in, say, the Pentagon, right, and see what what the rec individual records say. At the worst case, I could go in and change everyone's blood type. And what we don't know right now is, was this a pure espionage operation? 
It might have been because it was done by the SVR, which is sort of the pure espionage side of the Russian intelligence agencies. Or are they going to use that access to plant little bombs, put in more back doors, be able to manipulate data? And we may not know that for months, maybe years. Boy. David, we spend billions on defensive sensors all over the country. As you wrote, it's a system called Einstein. This was would appear to be a colossal failure. Uh, why and who's to blame? Well, it's a great question because the um, responsibility for defending the United States is split over many parts of the U.S. government for all kinds of historic and bureaucratic reasons. So the Einstein system, meant to convey genius, uh, is run by the Department of Homeland Security, which has responsibility for the civilian agencies of the U.S. government and has responsibility for advising U.S. companies and others, the states. So they're the ones who are out there giving the states some very good advice during the election season about how to handle um, securing their voting rolls and the voting machines and how to deal with the onslaught of paper ballots and stuff like that and the security of those. The responsibility for defending what's called the dot mill side, the, the military side of the internet, belongs to the National Security Agency, uh, which is an intelligence agency but also has a military role, also does, in addition to breaking the codes of our adversaries, it also um, makes codes for things like securing our nuclear weapons and the command and control system. Um, they've got a different set of sensors set up, but because they're an intelligence agency, they can't operate inside the United States. They have to do defense outside. Um, the FBI does investigation into uh, breaches after they happen, but they don't have a defensive role. United States Cyber Command which is sort of the military cousin of the NSA, is responsible for military offensive and defensive actions. And then every individual department is also supposed to have its, um, uh, and every government department is supposed to have their own cyber operations. Some of those are quite good. And no single coordinator? Well, there was one at the White House. Uh, actually, the Trump administration started with a very good one named Tom Bossert who was the Homeland yes. Security Advisor and knew a lot about cyber. I knew him first when he was in the um, Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. He then spent eight years out during the Obama years working largely on cyber issues, came back in, hired an extremely good guy from uh, the National Security Agency named Rob Joyce, who's now in London, um, as sort of the, the next sort of technical and liaison with the NSA. Together, they were had were organizing a pretty power team at the White House. It was dismantled as soon as John Bolton came in as national security advisor. And uh, that's where we stand today. Boy, let me ask one more and then turn it over to James. Uh, jo Joe Biden says when he takes over uh, January 20th, he is going to respond substantially. But there, there really isn't, you know, a symmetry here, is it? I mean, the Russians don't have the same infrastructure. That we have. So, yeah, we can do things to them, but we, we, we're we more limited, aren't we? Well, we are. You know, um, Al, a, a big argument I made in The Perfect Weapon, the, the uh, uh, book on this that I, I brought out in, in 2018 about the rise of constant conflict in the cyber world, is that 
this asymmetry gives advantage to the least wired societies attacking the most wired. So to give you the most mm -hmm. extreme example, think about North Korea, right? North Korea took out Sony Corporation famously or Sony Pictures Entertainment in 2014 in response to their release of a, of a, a comedy called The Interview that imagined the assassination of Kim Jong-un. They didn't think it was as funny as the producers of the movie did, and they wiped out 70% of Sony's computer power in about two and a half minutes after a very carefully planned, months-long planned attack. And um, so people then said, well, that's it. We'll turn around and fry North Korea's systems. Well, thank you. At the time, I think North Korea had maybe 18 internet protocol um, uh, addresses. You have more on your block in Washington than North Korea had in the entire country at the time. So the, this idea that the most wired society on earth is going to counterattack some of the least wired societies in the earth is not terribly satisfying. With Russia, you have an additional element of trouble here, which is that you don't want to escalate too far because if it spills into the kinetic realm, you're suddenly in escalation with a nuclear power. And so it's been the nature of cyber conflict that so far everybody has kept it below the level of war, below that red line where you'd send B-52s. And that's good news, but it also means you're highly vulnerable because people know that you don't want to escalate too much. And then there's the additional, there's the additional problem, one, just one last thought here, Al, which we can get into in a bit with James, which is, and we do the same to everyone else. So if we declare that this is an act of war, we have to think about whether we've committed some acts of war. James. Wow. So, so David, the, the Queen, who's uh, Christmasing in Windsor Castle, south of London, and I'm Christmas in, in Bay St. Louis, south of Hattiesburg. Uh -huh. But after the financial crisis, 2009, she was at the London School of Economics, and they had all these asshole city bankers and everything there. And she asked a question. She said, how did they not notice? Right. Just me sitting here. How did we, how did we not notice? It's a great I mean, it just sat there and picked our goddamn pocket. So and all of a sudden, disaster ensued. So the history of the most sophisticated cyber attacks, and it's one of the reasons we know it's the Russians, because they put a lot of time and effort into making sure that they wouldn't get caught right away, is that a lot of these can go on for months at a time if they're well executed without you noticing. So let me give you some examples. Do you remember when the Office of Personnel Management got hit back uh, five, six years ago and the Chinese cleared out 22.5 million um, security clearance files, you know, the details of every foreigner you've ever met and your medical records and your financial records, everything you would tell somebody in order to get a clearance. They were in the system for a year before the U.S. government picked up that the files were being grabbed by the Chinese, encrypted. We had not encrypted them and sent to Beijing. Okay, And we said, oh, we'll never make that mistake again. And that's when Einstein came online and was supposed to go pick this kind of thing up. But Einstein is only designed to look at the kinds of attacks that we've seen before or to look at like a brute force effort to go steal passwords or phishing attempts where I write in James and say, hi, James, I'm Mary, 
and uh, I uh, I forgot our family password. Can you send it to us, right? And you type it out, and it turns out it's not Mary at the other side, right? Um, so that's the typical stuff they can pick up. But we have never designed a radar that can go in and look at small changes in software that you already have installed, which was what getting into this update system turned out to be such a brilliant move. And that it was designed not to set off any alarms. Like a really good cat burglar, like you know, when Murph the Surf went into the Museum of Natural History in 1964 to get the Star of India, and he plotted out the ways where he wouldn't set off any of the window sensors. And it's sort of what they did here. Yeah. So I was in preparation for this. Uh, somebody said some uh, McCray Institute at Auburn. Mm-hmm. They had Tom Marset, Melissa Hathaway, Michael Daniel, Chris Inglis. Yep. Which seemed like a, a pretty, pretty high-end deal. Pretty, to, pretty great people. Frank. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so somebody made the analogy. I think it was Brissette says, look, just like the Japanese, we, we look up in the sky over Pearl Harbor, and we don't know if they're just taking pictures. Uh, we don't know maybe they're dropping mines at the, at the mouth of the harbor. I, I, I mean, these are the highest end people that you can get and in, in credential people in cybersecurity. And they didn't seem to know very much, to be honest with you. Well, that's because... One of the strange features of cyber as a weapon is that the same piece of access that enables you to get in and just take those pictures, you know, as Mitt Romney said, it's like the Russians were flying surveillance planes over our territory, just taking pictures. But the same access that gets the planes over your territory would also get you in place if you wanted to launch an attack. Now, so far, we have seen in this only surveillance. We've seen stolen emails and, you know, basically a way of, in, of, of imitating as if I was, you know, James Carville's computer and I've, you know, already got a trusted connection and, and they use that to get in. What we haven't seen, but what would be possible, is that they use that access, as I mentioned before, to do something that either uh, is destructive or manipulates data or both. And that's the concern here. And that's why the president's sort of dismissal of this as a creation of the media is crazy. Because we we don't know the depth of what they've done once they're in. And the psychological advantage of a cyber attack is that it makes you distrust your own computer and communication systems the same way the Russians want us to distrust our voting, the quality and integrity of our voting system. So Joe Biden's going to come in, and he's not going to know how much he can trust the systems of the United States that he is inheriting. Well, that, that, so I'll get one more question. I'll turn it out. But I sit here, and we got MIT and Stanford and Carnegie Mellon and UC Berkeley and God knows what not. We got tech companies that the market capitalization of tech company in the United States is I don't know how many trillion dollars. I'm I'm affiliated disclosure with Palantir, but you know God knows what they are worth. How in the hell can't this country do something? And why are we the leader in cybersecurity? How did a bunch of goddamn Russians just come in and kick our ass? 
It, it, it's up, but there's a giant failure here somewhere, David. Oh, it is. I think it's one of the... Not like we don't have expertise. No. I think it's one of the biggest intelligence failures we ever had. Look, we invented radar, and yet we didn't have the radar pointed in the right direction and turned on when Pearl Harbor happened. We invented the internet. Well, Al Gore invented the internet, but, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, we invented the internet, and uh, yet we did not have our radar designed for these kinds of supply chain attacks, even though, you know, these have been warned about for years. This three weeks ago, I chaired a, a panel at the Aspen Security Council. I was a moderator on supply chain attacks before, you know, we, did we know that this was going on at the time? Of course not. Um, so uh, it's been a known weakness that we have not organized how to address. And part of the problem is when you think about it, how did they come in? They didn't, they did not come in. Um, Go ahead, David. They did not come in uh, going after the, um, the actual government installations. They came in only uh, by trying to um, get into a commercial system. And remember, Commercial systems occupy about 85% of the internet traffic in the United States. And the government does not have, and probably shouldn't have, command over that part of the internet. Because once they do, they're going to have control over communications. So the question is, how do you get the private sector um, vulnerabilities sealed up in addition to sealing up the public sector? And recognizing that you're not going to stop all internet attacks, how do you design resilience in the system so that you do not um, end up uh, being so set back here that you have to burn everything down and rebuild it after you're attacked, which may be what a lot of agencies end up doing. David, let me, <clears throat> I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we, we, we believe this started sometime around last March. Do you think there could be any connection between the Russians calculating that, hey, this may be the end of uh, Donald Trump and we may have a less friendly government takeover or would they have done it no matter what? Well, it's a good question. We think now that they <laughs> tested their approach in the fall of 2019. With uh, some intrusions into the solar winds software that uh, were not at all damaging, but just basically casing the joint to see if they could break in. And then they came back in March. The scary thing is that the Department of Homeland Security has now said, we do not believe solar winds was the only method they used to get in. So we still don't, not only do we not understand all the full effects, we don't understand all the break-in points yet. There could be other pieces of software like SolarWinds out there that they were also using, and we don't know on what time schedule. So until we knew that, we couldn't answer the question. The other interesting question is, were they just lucky to do this during the time of the pandemic? Were they planning out that the Department of Homeland Security and the NSA and everybody would be so focused this year on election systems that maybe they should just put all their attention on non-election systems that are a lot likely to be getting 
as much scrutiny in a world of limited yeah. resources. That's fascinating. James, do you have a final question for the great David Sanger? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a, one of the theories is that we were so busy and paranoid about the election system that just came in the back door on us. But we sh- is anybody going to get fired over this? That's a really great question. Be, so you can't fire the government. I mean, they fired Russian Kimmel after Pearl Harbor, some people say unjustly, but is somebody going to lose their goddamn job mm-hmm. or their contract? Well, certainly solar winds, one would wonder why they never focused as much on security. Um the Department of Homeland Security did a quite good, and particularly CISA, the uh, Cybersecurity and, and Infrastructure Security Agency, did a very good job on the election. They don't have the authorities to go stop an attack like this. And the president already fired their head, not for anything that had to do with this, but for rightly declaring that the election was fair and honestly conducted and was probably one of the best conducted elections in United States history. So. Um, they can't fire that guy. The next one who uh, you would have to say has some responsibility is General Paul Nakasone, who is the director of the National Security Agency. He is the commander of the United States Cyber Command. He holds both jobs. And uh, he's one of the most experienced cyber warriors we have. And he came in two and a half years ago with the right strategy. And the strategy was that we could not simply defend ourselves at the border, but much like special forces goes in and knocks out a, a house in Pakistan when bomb makers are sitting there assembling their bombs, we have to be inside foreign networks and seeing these things come together and deal with them preemptively before they come to the United States. And the big question that General Nakasone is now going to have to answer is, Assuming we were inside the SVR in some way and other Russian intelligence, how did we not see this come together? And so far, General Nakasone has been completely silent. I can understand why he might be, given the president's proclivity to lash out at any intelligence finding he doesn't like. Part of what worries me, and I reported this in the Times this morning, is that General Nakasone, because he is part of the military, has not yet been allowed to go brief the incoming Biden transition team. So we are more than a week into this right now. And our lead cyber commander in the U.S. military has not been allowed to sit down and do the briefing. Now, he knows the Biden folks. He's been around cyber for a long time. He was promoted up during the Obama era. Uh, He was head of Army cyber during uh, during the Obama era. Um, so he's known and respected, not allowed to talk to them yet. I find that, that pretty is, unconscionable. That, that, that really is. That's just shocking. But, uh, David, this has been so illuminating and it is, it is scary. And I'm sure it's a story that isn't going to go away. I hope you'll come back. I also hope you're going to be safe and I'm going to w- wish you, you the happiest of holidays and the safest of holidays. The great David Sanger. Thank you, Absolutely. Al. Thanks, James. I, 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 I don't miss a byline, a story with his byline. And I've done it in this century. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are Sanger groupies, David. So well, thank you and happy holidays, okay? Happy holidays to you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. 
James, it's Christmas week, and so what do we do every Christmas week? We have on Mary Madeline and Judy Woodruff, uh, our much, much better halves. <clears throat> talk, we talk about our Christmas celebrations, and they make a little bit of fun of us. Let me just start off with, with Miss Madeline. Uh, Mary, I'm going to steal a line that Novak used to use about me. You were all, we're all so grateful for you for letting James keep his maiden name. And uh, you can tell us now how you're <laughs> going to celebrate this year's Christmas. We had a wonderful discussion last year about big family parties and all kinds of events. Tell us about this year. Well, first of all, I hope everybody's safe and sane and silver bells to everyone. And um, I don't know what we're going to do. We've been, how can you have any conversation about any traditions in the year, the lost year of 2020? Perhaps there's, there'll be a, another locust event or something like that. But at least I'm with my girls and I'm not with my husband, which is a very sad thing, but he's safe. And we are going to have a, I guess, a, what are we going to have, honey? It's going to be like a dual citizenship FaceTime Christmas. Is that the new one? We're having Christmas. When this, we're going to have Christmas in Europe this summer. That's Which the girls are excited about. Yeah. So yeah. we're making new traditions. So, so with every there's a silver lining to every hor horrific event. And the silver lining is it's the age of new traditions. And our mm -hmm. kids who didn't get married this year and didn't graduate this year all right, we're going to make it up to them next year with James's plotting over there while he's isolated by himself. He's plotting a whole summer. So that's what our Christmas tradition is going to be from henceforth. James plotting a whole summer in advance. You can do a Zoom call on 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 Friday because uh, I, I know James can do Zoom calls because we do one every Sunday. For personal reasons? <laughs> personally Zoom each other? So the only good news about Christmas Day is this. The Pelicans are on at 11 o'clock and the Saints are on at 3.30. So that... I'm not, the Zoom is not looking good to me. I, it's just another depressing thing. No, the Saints it's are just fine. Another, the Saints are fine. They're good. Drew looks hurt. Okay, Judy, how are you doing? Are you? We only talk about football in this family. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just glad to get a word in edgewise here at my house. Um, we are, uh, it's great to hear your voices, both of you. Um, we are going to have a, 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 a smaller Christmas. Uh, we only have four of our five family, six family members here, um, uh, because, uh, we're not able to spend time with our daughter and our grandson who's still going to daycare regularly. So we can only see them outdoors and we plan to visit with them outdoors tomorrow afternoon in Bethesda, Maryland, and then, uh, here in Washington on Christmas Day, it's just a very different Christmas. We're not going skiing. We're not going anywhere. We're staying right here uh, and thankful for our blessings. That's one of the silver linings. This is I, has been a year of opportunity to and time and space to be contemplative about our blessings. And we have many people, as we don't need to even say, we have many, and I, I count you guys as friends amongst the blessings. And thank you for all your support in the year, by the way. It's been, a, it's been an unhealthy year for us too. So thank you, your blessing. 
Well, of course. I mean, we love you guys, and um, and we're we're grateful. Everybody's coming to the end of this year uh, with our with our health intact because we know so many people around the world and in this country, you know, haven't had it nearly as lucky as uh, as we have. We've got a lot to be grateful for. Yeah, and we are lucky that both of our boys will be home. Uh, Jeffrey, who's in a wonderful group home up in Westminster, where they've taken great care. And he's going to, their, their group will be among the first that will get the vaccine. <clears throat> and That's Benjamin, cool. who uh, courtesy of uh, James Carville has been a political hack in North Carolina. Uh, they yeah. actually won uh, and he's uh, been tested uh, several times and he'll be coming home today. So it, it's not going to be what it was before. Uh, we usually go and have Alan Greenspan and Andrew Mitchell over. We hope to go over and see them outside. But but I think Mary, you, um, you you got it exactly right. So many people have so much more hardship and so much more struggles that we really are lucky. Denial. Well, starting with James's family, I'd like to get off COVID, but poor James. As you know, everything happens in multi to the exponent in James's family because that is one of our Christmas traditions. We're not doing so. His eight siblings or he's one of eight they had 47 kids and those 47 kids have now had like 175 kids and that's we always cram in and we're not doing this that this year for obvious reasons but in the meantime the entire Carvel clan of 300 people how many have COVID now honey oh okay I've lost count you know so I bet you my mom and daddy's descending line we've had 20 at least. And it's, I mean, some people have gotten sick. No one's been mercifully so far. Thank God, as of now, uh, nobody's been hospitalized. But but COVID is particularly dangerous to big families. It, it, it just, family life is not conducive. And it's, you know, so, so far, hopefully everybody get recovered but it did it, it, well blessing. how is benjamin driving up that's another that's something new tradition this year we're now driving everywhere he he's like driving. driving back and forth to new orleans right he's, he's driving uh to washington from uh raleigh uh on uh two days before christmas um you're right i mean we we'd much more lean on be leaning on airplane travel i haven't been on a plane since early march uh, and I don't think Al has been, you know, this for a long time, um, and which is for us is very unusual. I mean, I travel, uh, you know, frequently in my work, and um, it's and I, you know, we didn't have conventions, we didn't have the typical political travel that we would have had in an election year. Um, it's just every everything has been different about this year. Um, so I think we can't wait for 2020 to be over. One, one, one thing that is good uh, on, on, on Christmas Day is that I have gone from, I don't know, usually mid-afternoon till 7 o'clock, I have to go someplace, go back to our bedroom and be quiet because Judy broadcasts from our library, which is like 10 feet from where we are right now. So at least starting uh, tomorrow, I'm free at last. I can make noise uh, from four to six thirty or yeah, seven, but only for a few days, and then <laughs> and then on the thirty first, he's got to go back to being quiet. No, Al Hunt has been under wraps uh, in the late afternoon, um, and sometimes if you listen carefully during the new PBS News Hour, you'll hear a door close, <laughs> and that'll be Al, you know, sneaking out of the bedroom to go get something from the refrigerator or whatever. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's the same hours James holds for his brown liquor drinking. <laughs> no, he's not a brown liquor day drinker. But we do have different rhythms with our bodies now. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that the pandemic has done for me is I watch the news hour a lot more than I, he I does did before, but almost kind of religiously watch it because it's. I'm not just saying this because it's you on the phone, Judy, but I mean it's the best news hour uh, that there is. I mean, it's you know y'all do a really you know really good job. It, 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 I've just come to learn it's almost become part of my daily routine now. Well, so we we're very grateful to hear that. That's wonderful to know, and of course the credit goes to my amazing colleagues. I've got a team of correspondents and producers and uh, all kinds of talented people who get us on the air every day. But I have to say my colleagues have done way above and beyond this year. Everybody's been working from home. Those who've had to travel have been real troopers um, because some people have had to travel. Um, and it's just extraordinary. The stories that, that they found of people suffering and, and managing and muscling through this pandemic, people out of work, people hurting yeah. because of family members. It's, it's been, a, and it's, I don't have to tell you, James, it's been an extraordinary wow. year. One of the most moving segments is every Friday, they do a piece on how many, Judy, seven, eight, 10, uh, five, five people who have died of course, and their life story. Uh, and it is so incredibly moving. They, they did a longer piece for about 45 minutes. Was it on Thanksgiving Day? We ran about 40, 40 minutes of, um, of the stories of, of just ordinary Americans who are, uh, of course, every story is fascinating in its own way. But these are people who otherwise we might not have ever heard about, but their family members shared their <laughs> stories with us. Um, and, you know, many of them are immigrants. Many of them came from different parts of the world. Uh, they are contributing to their community. They love their families. And uh, I have to say, I don't think there's a dry eye after every one of these. A lot of, lot of. Well, this is a cheery Christmas conversation. I know. <laughs> I know it is. Um, can you give us any hint as to what you're going to give James for Christmas? Or you do not want to do that, Mary? James, shut your ears because the girls are very excited about this. And I am blessed to have the girls here and and our son-in-law-to-be, even though we had to cancel the wedding this year. Now, we're not getting each other anything, but James is very, believe it or not, and you might not believe this, and I'm certain your listeners aren't going to believe it, he is uber organized. Like He has to have those little drawer things with little places to put everything. So James, you know what I got you? A coin thing. You throw your coins in it and it puts them in little balls or whatever those oh, things God. are. Isn't that a good gift for you? Right. There's a coin shortage and I have like buckets of coins. I don't know why, but I do it. I ought to, <laughs> I ought to go to the store and just, just pay up the coin. But I, that Christmas present is when this thing, this summer, we're, we're going to go to Europe. And we're going to have to get one of those coin things. Al just throws them in a big dish. We've got three big dishes around the house. Yeah. Al's yeah. pennies and nickels. I think we should save them for our kids because soon it'll only be Bitcoin. And they'll say, Mom and Dad, <laughs> Grandpa and Grandma, do you remember when there was like, this is my kids say, 
did you ever meet a hippie? So then in the future, they'll say, did you ever remember when there were coins? Like people had to carry around coins. <laughs> yeah, I, I still carry cash. I, you know, the, 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 the kids look at me like I'm crazy, you know, because when, I, when we grew up, you know, you had to have a roll. And it's, it's, it's such a such a cultural difference. If I don't carry you ever seen him do that? He just whips out this wad and he's like. (laughs) I haven't seen it. Now I'm looking forward. (laughs) If I don't carry change, uh, invariably the bill will be $7.41 or $8.66, and I'll get back all these pennies, which I do. As Judy says, I just throw in a pile. And when we moved, uh, to this condominium five years ago, I I probably had well over a thousand pennies, and I, now we have two thousand. I gave them <laughs> I gave them to my daughter, and she then later told me, you know, it really wasn't that much. <laughs> so it's fun to make. I didn't know you guys moved. We have a new condo too. Everybody's downsizing. Yeah, yeah it's 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 been great. I have to say again, we're incredibly lucky. We've got people who help us. You know, every all Christmas this year was ordered by mail, um, little boxes and big boxes, and great. We've got some great help carrying stuff up and down the the elevator um, in our in our building. Um, and we forgot to turn uh, the phone off. We forgot to turn the phone off. Um, but we are I mean, no. We we like the down. I wasn't the one, Mary, who wanted to downsize. It was Mr. Hunt who wanted to do that, and I've come around to agreeing. It's a it's a good idea, but it sure was not easy to to give up the place we'd lived in for thirty five years. It's very emotional. We're selling our house in New Orleans. It's very emotional, isn't it? It's like it yeah. it's giving oh. away. It's like giving up part of your where your kids grew up, and I don't think I think Judy only. Girls get this. I don't know why. I was embarrassed at how emotional I was, like weeping to leave this house. So I'm with you, girlfriend. Yeah, same here. And our children, frankly, were even more emotional. Well, yeah, our daughter said to me, you're going to give away my childhood? (laughs) There you go. Right. She's a smart one. I'm into into one-story living. I got to tell you, the most frightening thing in the world in the mid-70s is stairs. <laughs> the few of those I got encountered the better. I got I, I obviously high up because I'm on the Mississippi coast, but once I get here, I'm, I got one, one story. Yeah. And James, I'll tell you one thing I've learned from being home these last nine months. I understand why pollsters are having more trouble because anybody on a landline gets more damn calls that are, that are absolute either scams or trying to sell you something. Now the phone rings all the time during the day. So I can understand why the right. Peter Hartz and Neil Newhouses are having such response problems. Well, uh, what they do when they call me, they usually, whatever program they have, they got, I, I still have a 202 cell phone. I just kept the same number when I moved down here. They, so you get 202 and you get the first three prefect of your phone. And when I see that, I, I, I know it's, I don't answer it. And 80% of them do that. I don't know if that's true of everybody else, but it's certainly true of me. Well, whatever happened to the law that you can't you can't do that on cell phones? That's wow. did that so, they don't stop that, that these people are in you know India, or Pakistan somewhere. They don't care about the law. Yeah, yeah, and they and they've managed they managed to 
come up with numbers that look like they could be your neighbor because they have the same prefix. It's not yeah. just a 202. Exactly. It'll be the same. So it, th- yeah. it could be somebody who lives down the street. It turns out, you know, not at all. No, no. Yeah. They keep telling me about our utility bills. Now, of course, we don't have any utility bills because we live in a condo. But, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I will tell you one present we're giving, and I can tell you because it's for our daughter. Our son listens to this podcast every week. Unfortunately, our daughter never listens to it or rarely does. But we had a sponsor. I hope we still have them uh, called Paint Your Picture. And uh, I had a photo, actually, the Christmas card we sent you all. The cover of it was a picture of our three-year-old grandson and the puppy we gave him a couple months ago. And they did a picture. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Uh, (laughs) The picture, they they painted a picture that is so good. Isn't it, Judy? I mean, it it really is. It's really fun. So I'll be a hero for a day. (laughs) <laughs> you know can i make a shameless plug here sorry honey interrupt you have another sponsor that sent james a bunch of cereal but bo- it's oh, the God, most yes. delicious oh, i love that who are those guys magic spoon magic oh spoon. my god i love that stuff so, so simon thank you drop mary in in the magic spoon thing, if J, if JT can put that together, we'll try endorsing that because those are our best sponsors, the magic spoon, and they're good too. They're real good. Yeah, yeah. Al loves the our daughter and our grandson who just turned three loves it. I mean, we've got we've got all generations endorsing magic spoon. You know, and isn't it cool for a three year old to be able to replicate? What we did when we were three, except in a healthy way, eating cereal with your little pudgy hands out of a box. (laughs) It's got protein and fiber and everything good in it instead of Captain Crunch. No offense to Captain Crunch. But it's such a – I love their whole tagline or their whole message. It's like being a kid again. You walk around with a box of cereal and you stick your grubby little hands in it and you just stuff them in your mouth. It's the best product with the best message. I love it. Thank you, you guys. It is. And, and Mary, I know what an animal lover you are. There's nothing better than to see a, a two or three-year-old with a puppy. I mean, it is just, they are great. The, the I had the puppy yesterday and I took it back to, to uh, Lauren and Kai, and the puppy started to, you know, they, they play, they bite. They don't bite in a real way. They bite because they're teething. And uh, the three-year-old looked looked at the puppy and said, I'm your brother. I'm not food. <laughs> oh, my God. They're so precious. I hope you're recording all these things that you think you're going to remember. But Well, here's one deal. What kind of when, when things get better and you guys both are in Washington, you're coming over for dinner at this condo. Uh, it's oh, only one no. level, James. We don't have to worry about stairs, and yeah. um, and and we'll rehash all this, and we'll plan for what next Christmas is going to be like. That's yeah, right. it's it, it's got to be better than twenty twenty. Um, it's it. Other than the fact that Al and I have gotten to spend some wonderful quality time together, we have all, all day long, every single day. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot about twenty twenty not to love. Right. Well. Puppies and magic spoons. Can I make an animal story? You know, speaking of our kids are all here. And this one other silver lining of 2020 is the adoption of animals. And we went to the shelter out here and got three baby kittens Mm -hmm. for my two, my three kids. And there, if there's anything as cute as a 
little boy and a puppy. Aww. It's three ginormous adults and teeny weeny kittens who were, somebody threw them in a bag and threw them on the side of the road. So they've been completely raised by humans. Aww. So they think they're dogs or they think they're kids. I don't know what, but it is amazing that the, and lovely and endearing this, the, how people are spending their time communicating with all modes of God's creatures in 2020. Yeah, it, yeah that's so wonderful, Mary. I mean, our son Ben uh, had a foster dog in, in North Carolina, and he fell in love with this mutt, this adorable dachshund mutt. And he, oh, and he now has this, this dog, a T-Rex, permanently. He's now adopted him. It's just the sweetest Sweetest thing you've ever seen. It was so sweet because the dog had probably been abused before and it was very needy and it has grown to be so affectionate with Benjamin. And if he had not, if he'd given it back, uh, it would have been gone uh, in another uh, day. So it's just, it's it's really almost a, sounds silly, but it's almost a love story. The two are just great together. Listen, this is not a love story. Let me say this for your listeners. This is an important thing. And I'm not saying this as an animal person, but when I was, when we lived in Washington, I was on the Humane Society board and the, and we partnered with a women's shelter, you know, a battered, abused women's shelter. And whenever the Dalai Lama comes to do business and, you know, political business, he picks one like domestic thing. And he came to our battered women's shelter where the abused animals would partner up with the abused women and they would socialize each other and bring each other out of. And when the Dalai Lama came, we had this woman who was really terribly affronted you know assaulted and so was the dog and they came out and they so loved each other and they both brought out of the other not only the healing process but this kind of love that only dalai lama could express do you know what i mean so this is an important people communicate like the whole universe is connected and connecting with animals for people is a very is a is something I don't think we know enough about, but we can see its impact Amen. on lives. And, you know, we've talked about some down things uh, in the session, but boy, that is a great upbeat note to end on. Mm-hmm. Anybody out there, any listener who can, uh, you know, go to the shelter and adopt, you know, one of these dogs because they can be, you know, just so such a wonderful, loving addition to you. Mary Madeline, be safe. And uh, uh, a Merry Christmas, and we look forward to seeing you here. Uh, And James, in isolation or by yourself down there, uh, just know that uh, you'll be in Europe for Christmas. I am, and I've got my Christmas Day dinner. I went to Tesh. I I got curbside service. I overtipped a guy, and I got bacon-braised white beans, seafood gumbo, and they have a thing called a shrimp roll, which is a lobster roll, but they make it with shrimp. It's so delicious you can't believe it. So I'm I'm well provided. My provisions are in good shape. Good shape. Love your children, you guys. We All miss right. you. We love you. Aww. Kisses to everybody. Send a picture of the baby and the puppy. We a will do. One. Love, love to you guys. Love the love image everybody. of the kittens, <laughs> Mary. Uh, thank you for leaving thank us with that. Uh, great, great. Wow. Merry, Merry, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Okay, guys. And a happy new year. (laughs) I'm going to let her say. The the Dalai Lama. (laughs) That's great. This is a, this.
holiday season was a fish, we would throw it back in. I, I promise you, no one. This is not a keeper, but one of the real problems we have and challenges we all face. And I got to tell you, to some extent, I face this too. Is people are struggling mentally, and a lot of people are alone. And we want our people to know. One of our sponsors is a group called Better Help, and you can align yourself online, and and they will get you with a a, a licensed. Uh, professional psychologist, psychiatrist, uh, they'll, they'll, you'll tell them the nature of your problems and you can get professional help and it's at a, it's, a, it's at a reasonable rate. And till you get better mentally, you're not going to get better physically. And I, I don't think there's anybody in this country, James Carver included. BetterHelp, spelled H-E-L-P, is a worldwide professional counseling service. It's done securely online with a broad range of expertise available that you're not going to find locally. Your therapeutic match is important. And at BetterHelp, you can easily change counselors until you find what you think is the perfect fit. BetterHelp can get you communicating with a therapist in under 48 hours, and you can log into your account anytime to send a message to your counselors. James, uh, tell us why you like that idea of being able to contact from home. I, I, I mean, first of all, you get you get to have a conversation with a mental health professional. And to the extent that you cannot, no human is going through this that is not suffering some form of depression. And I mean, it just, it it affects behavior. It affects the way that you treat other people. And it's, it's, you can do this. It's totally confidential. It's totally affordable. And it's, it's just an idea that whose time has come. No, you're so right. And, and as you say, best of all, it's, a, it's, it's more affordable than traditional offline uh, counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp, spelled H-E-L-P, wants you to start living a happier life today, now. Recent reviewers are saying things of the service, like, and I quote, Adrian Logan is phenomenal. I've really made progress on my goals around my anxiety. She kindly and calmly reassures me and reminds me of my coping skills when I feel like I'm struggling. Adrian's expertise and upbeat support has been invaluable, end quote. The service is getting so popular, they're now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Visit betterhelp.com slash warroom, all one word. That's betterhelp.com slash warroom and join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental, mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash warroom or look for the link in our show notes. James, we have a lot of terrific questions this week. As always, we say this is our favorite segment. We better say it's our second favorite today after Mary Madeline and Judy Woodruff. But the first is from, is from a Blair uh, in Denton, Texas, who wants to ask you, how should the Democratic Party address the leftist woke faction going into 2021? And is this a foreshadowing of real problems for the party? It's a, that's a good, it's a question that is on a lot of people's mind. It, the, the reality is on its best day, and that assumes that we win two seats in Georgia the party cannot be any more woke than Joe Manchin, right? 
And so the first thing we need to do with the woke faction of the party is give them a, a, a calculator or just do some basic arithmetic. And I think that it, it is starting to catch on. Now they're starting to, to you know, Ilian Omar is attacking AOC and they're, they're, they're fighting among themselves because they really don't have very much power. And they'll they'll have to get used to get way more attention than they get power. And you and I have discussed this forever. They never win a seat anywhere that doesn't have a cooked PVI of plus D30. Right. So what they need to do is go before they want to burst out on the national scene uh, or before the press. uh, The press gives them outside attention to their influence. And the the truth of the matter is they have – very, very, very little influence. And on their best day, uh, they better try to wake Joe Manchin up because that's as woke as we're going to get. Yeah. The, the, the next question comes from Jeff in Clarksburg, West Virginia, who notes that in a very short period of time, West Virginia has gone from super majorities for Democrats in their legislature to Republicans with no turnaround in sight. I would remind our listeners in 1988, that wasn't that long ago. Virginia voted overwhelmingly for Michael Dukakis, not exactly a, a cultural conservative. And up until 10 years ago, their two senators were Jay Rockefeller, you know, one of the most effective progressive lawmakers in the Senate, and Robert C. Byrd, who in his later years was a, was a real liberal. Uh, but the cultural issues have turned the state around. Uh, uh, Jeff wants to know if Democrats has to go have to has to go back to it meat and potatoes to appeal to some of those voters. They got to do something because I don't see any prospect, James, for West Virginia turning back blue for a long, long time. I agree with you, and it's uh, you know, the the the, the some of the, the the cultural arrogance of of some Democrats is just not really played well in West Virginia. But I mean, it's 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 deep red. And, it's not going to change yeah. for the foreseeable future. But just thank God we got Senator Manchin there. That's right. I oh, mean, I you know, you, you he, he, he's, he's good and he's the best you can do uh, yeah. there. James, uh, I love I love these letters from uh, Australia and other places. And Darren and Danielle from Sydney uh, right now, and this may shock some of our listeners. I'm just going to quote them. This is the way Australians talk. Why do Republicans never seem to pay a price for their political fuckery these days, but Democrats are crucified in the House for things that ultimately the Senate is responsible for? It's so frustrating. This is from 5,000 miles away. I think it's more than five, but but at any rate, it's it's far. Uh, California, right. That, that's exactly the conversation that you and I have every day. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's paid no price. I mean, it paid no price. It started in 2000 with Bush v. Gore. And they've come to realize it doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. And they're right. And Mitch McConnell, look at Merrick Garland. Didn't pay any price. And they just ruthlessly exercised power. And their people... Are, are, are totally fine with that. The, the truth of the matter is, if Democrats lied like lied like, like it, it just wouldn't stand for it. It's just two different cultures. 
It, it really does. It really is. And, and, and it, 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 you're right in Sydney, and it feels just exactly like that here. That right. There is no price to pay for the ruthless application of power. And, and Bush v. Gore just said, the hell with it. Right. It's not applied anything, but right now we're just going to steal the presidency. And they did that, and everybody gave them a green light. And I, I, it, it, it is depressing. I thought there would be a big accounting uh, in November. There really wasn't much of one, and it was it was it was it, it was highly disappointing. Uh, you know, no, no you're, you're absolutely right. And McConnell paid no price for his delays on COVID nineteen. He paid no price for his outrageous uh, holding of Merrick Garland for nine ten months. He paid no price for rushing through a Supreme Court nomination this year in a matter of weeks. He paid no price for refusing to join the protest uh, against the Russian interference in 16. So if you don't pay a price, you know, you keep doing it. Uh, and that, you know, Phil from Brooklyn is asking us, with Trump and Trumpism seemingly fracturing the Republicans, what are the chances of a viable third party emerging? Are there Romneys, Murkowskis, and Collins? Zero, Phil. Because, uh, and, and, and I must tell you, I have become a latter-day, to use an expression, great admirer of Mitt Romney. He, his, his votes are going to disappoint me 80% of the time, but he has stood up on impeachment. He has stood up on the election. He stood up on the COVID uh, uh, response. He stood up on the Russian cyber attacks. And that's what you expect from a genuine conservative, but, but they've, they've bought in. I mean, overall, they bought in. Uh, the Murkowskis and right. Collins are getting their tax cuts. And um, I, I think the Republican Party today thinks it is in really, really good shape. I wish I could say I disagree with them, but I'm not sure I do. So, Albert, on Mitt Romney, just so we know, after Trump was elected, after Trump had gone through the birtherism and everything else, Mitt Romney went there and kissed his ass to try to be Secretary of State. Just, just, just be sure that that part of the record of Mitt Romney was there. And, well, and we Trump could we could find some similar. I mean, I could find some similar anecdotes too about Democrats that we like, James, and we both know that. And right. so, uh, do I think that was his finest hour? No. And 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 going into the last year or so, uh, I was hardly a Mitt Romney admirer. But he did stand up on impeachment. He did stand up on the Russians cyber attacks. He did stand up on the election. Right. And, uh, you know, he's a conservative. I mean, you know, you're not going to get his votes. And uh, he shouldn't have done that. He was he was duped by Trump in 2016. But at least he seems to have learned a lesson. I I, I, I agree. And I like these never Trumpers who are George W. Bush's people. Uh, before you start waxing nostalgic about the Bush administration, somebody else. Uh, no, I'm not doing that. Okay. <laughs> all right. But that's all right. I, and I, I, I agree that Mitt Romney is the most admirable Republican in Washington. Yeah. Which is, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that statement. I think it's both true and it doesn't require he, much here's, more. Here's a question from Chris. And Chris, uh, I like your question. I wish if you write again, you'll tell us where you're from because that really is interesting. And she said, are the Trump requests for money in the name of overturning the election results subject to a mail fraud prosecution? James, you answer this. My guess is they should be and they're not. Yeah, I I don't know. Look, there, there there's some people, you know, that this has always been a a it, it, that that's not 
going to be something that they're going to prosecute him on. There's so much more. Now, you know, we talk about this all the time, and I'll say it, they, there has to be an accounting here. And how they, how they do it or who does it, I don't know. But we just can't, we just can't let bygones be bygones. Yeah. And it's not going to heal the country. It's, it's not going to do anything until we have an exhaustive record of the depth and, and, and the, the scope of the criminality that has transpired in this country in the last four years. Uh, that yeah. I really believe. Well, I, you know, I hope it happens. Um, I really do. Ned, in, in, I hope I get this right, James. It looks like Pulgap, Washington. Have you ever been to Pulgap, Washington? If I did, I'd, I, it looks like it'd be the kind of place I'd remember. But I would think so. But he's, he, he does ask, he's, he asked a very good question. Democrats in the problem, problem Solvers Caucus in the House forced some rules changes on Nancy Pelosi in 2018. I, I must tell you, Ned, I don't think they were terribly significant. Um, and I think she did the right thing. But, but he asked, is there an opportunity for moderate Republican senators to do the same to Mitch McConnell in 2021? Ned, the problem is that you could fit all those moderate Republicans in a phone booth and still have some space. Uh, and uh, most of them uh, have been are buying off or bought off or whatever have you on Mitch McConnell. Uh, so I don't think there's any chance of that occurring. No. It's a good. It's a, it's a great question. It's a great idea, and no, no can happen. Well, it's a great question. It's a great idea, and it's a great, um, uh, you know, it's a great town to be from, Pulyap, Washington. Yeah. Here's a town yeah. that's as good as Pulyap, if not better, Henry, I, I in New Orleans, Louisiana. James, this is tailor made for you. I, you may have put Henry up to this. To what extent do members of the media now recognize? that Hillary Clinton was a strong nominee who lost not because she was a bad candidate, but because she simply was overpowered by forces the media did not see. Uh, I, I think that his question is good. I, in, in some ways, she was, her, uh, you know, her campaign wasn't that good, I don't think. I think, I think it, 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 of course, she got you know, overwhelmed about a jackass email stories which has got to be one of the lowest moments in, in the history of the press corps. Uh, but I think with a sort of different kind of campaign, she might have been able to overcome that. But it, 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 it is very, very legitimate. I think there was something like, uh, I don't know how many hours of sworn testimony on the Christmas card list. But I, but I think that the, the media played a significant role in Trump's in the, in the last four years, but I, I, I do, in all honesty, think that in, in retrospect, there are a couple of decisions that, that the campaign made that uh, I, I'd like to, to rerun that with a more of a focus on, on you know, middle class, of all middle class people, and less of a focus on some other campaign gas. But but you're, you're, you're right. You're exactly right. But there's some contributing factors there also. Not to mention, yeah, Henry. I think you have a point, but I I would add to what James said that, uh, and and I have some and had some criticisms of her campaign, even her as a candidate. If it hadn't been for James Comey and the Russians, she still would have won. So, uh, and she did win the popular vote. So, um, good question. Uh, Keep those cards and letters coming. Uh, We really do love this questions, and please tell us where you're from. 
Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Remember to email your questions to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning for 2021. And I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas or Happy Holiday and be safe.